0: church now this morning we're going to continue in the book of acts we are in acts chapter 25 um, this morning and so we're gonna get rolling on that but let's go ahead and pray again before we do so Heavenly Father we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning we thank you that you have brought us uh, this far and that um, You are with us each step of the way. As your son Jesus promised us that you are with us um, to the end of the age. And Lord, we just give you so uh, great thanks for that reality that we don't go through this life alone, but you are with us. And that you've given us um, a church family to fellowship with and to to walk through life uh, together with. And so we praise you, dear God. For your goodness to us this morning. As we look into your word today, please teach us from it and instruct our lives. We ask it in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Alright, let's pick up the beginning of uh, chapter 25. But we see at the end of chapter 4 that Felix um, had been recalled. And now uh, Festus has taken his place uh, to rule over that province. So it says in chapter 25... Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him asking a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me and if there is anything among... Uh, anything wrong about that man, let them bring charges against him. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, and he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there to be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed committed anything for which I deserve to die... I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing wrong to their charges against me, no one can give them up to me. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So we see we have a new ruler in the area, and the Jewish leaders try the same trick that they had tried before. Uh, to um, have Paul killed, to set up an ambush for him. We actually see at this point now, we have seven attempts by the Jewish leaders to kill Paul. Um, the first one was in Damascus after his conversion in chapter 9. Then uh, the second one in Jerusalem, again in, in Acts chapter 9. In Lystra, the th- so the third time was in Lystra, they stoned him, and they thought they had killed him. That's chapter 14. Uh, he had to flee Thessalonica and the leaders um, he had to flee from Thessalonica in chapter 17 then the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica came to Berea and Paul had to flee um, from Berea as well where he went on to Athens and so that's the fourth and fifth times. The sixth time they stirred up the mob that would have killed him if not for the Roman intervention back in Jerusalem in chapter 21 Um, and then Two, two years prior in chapter 23. So we have, uh, you know, seven times they've attempted to, to kill him, and then this would, here would be their, their eighth, you know, kind of go at it. So that just shows he was a marked man in their book. So now we pick back up in verse 13. Uh, it says, Now when some days had passed, a group of the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And there, I just want to stop for a moment and give a little bit of who these people are um, before we move forward. So, Agrippa the king um, is Agrippa, Agrippa um, or Herod Agrippa II. So, he is the great grandson of Herod the Great. If you remember, Herod the Great was ruling at the time that Jesus was born, and he had all the children, the male Jewish children in that area, two years. And under-killed. Jesus had already been taken to Egypt uh, by Joseph um, and Mary. So that's uh, what he was known for. He had several sons. Um, One was named Philip. Uh, Philip had married Herodias. Herodias gave birth to Herod Agrippa I. But then Philip's brother, Herod Antipas, stole Philip's wife. So Herod Agrippa's uncle became his stepfather. And John the Baptist called out Herod and Tippus on his many sins um, and lost his life for it. So if you remember that whole story from the Gospels. So Herod Agrippa I went on to behead one of the apostles called James, the son of Zebedee. Zebedee, not Jebedee, he's not southern, like from the Appalachia, he's son of Zebedee. Um, But we saw this happen in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa I had married the first had a son, Herod Agrippa II, that's who we're talking about here. And he had two da- daughters, Drusilla and Bernice. Drusilla married the Felix that we read about in Acts chapter 24. Uh, so Felix and Herod Agrippa, the first, are brothers in law, uh, but um, Herod Agrippa had a much higher position. Bernice is his other sister. Um, after her husband died, she moved in with Agrippa. The second that's talked about here and their history is a bit unsettling. Um, And so she remarried to try to put the accusations about the relationship with her brother aside, but soon left her new husband and returned to her brother. So there you have that. So to say that this is a dysfunctional but powerful family that didn't mind doing evil if they benefited from it in some way would be a little bit of an understatement. Um, You know, they they have kind of quite the reputation here um, for the evil that they were willing to commit. So verse 14, we read. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, your (laughs) brother-in-law, prisoner by Felix. And I was when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose." Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Okay. Um, you know, one thing that I just find really interesting here, and, and it's really sad, that imagine the Romans, the Roman officials, having to tell the Jewish leaders that it's not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has the opportunity to make his defense. That you have the Romans having to instruct the Jewish leaders who had the law, you know, the of the, uh, the Moses and the. And the prophets and all that, and having to be to be instructed by a you know clearly pagan polytheistic culture on a lesson on justice. That that's pretty sad. You know that's a pretty sad thing to have happened here. Um, that they have again in their their desire, you know, to um, keep what they hold to. You know their power and what they hold to be true. They're willing to break all the principles for the principle that they're trying to, you know, keep intact, and and you know, that's a that's a sad, sad thing. And so they're they're losing more and more um, of the way of God as they are fighting against what God has done through Jesus. Um, and that's a that's a very sad thing, indeed. Okay, so now. Um, Let's pick up in verse 23. So now on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So now the stage is set. So going on to chapter 26... So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And now what we're going to see here is that Paul is going to use what we've talked about before of his basic method of sharing his testimony. He includes different things kind of each time he shares, but the, you know, the, the, the framework is the same. It's going to have three parts, his life before Jesus, how he met Jesus, and his life since then. And so here's the, the first part um, as he makes his defense. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself Now this is powerful because even though some of the details here are not flattering to himself and to how he lived, he still shares that story with you know conviction. You know, this is the truth of who I was. You know, and at one point, you know, people would have admired him for what he did, but his audience here you know, wouldn't admire him for having you know tried to destroy people um, in this way. Um, so he, you know, he, he's not afraid to look bad in order that Jesus can look good. Does that make sense? Uh, you know, and, and with our testimonies, we, we shouldn't live in, in, in shame of, you know, or be ashamed of the things in the past, the things that were before Jesus. Uh, now, what we want to do when we share our testimonies, we don't want to glorify those things. You know, sometimes you hear people's testimony and it sounds like they're more glorifying that past than they are saying how bad it was. Um, so we, we don't want to glorify it, but we do want to be real about it so that people will understand the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. Um, it creates the contrast um, and the contrast is what uh, Paul is after here. And so then he's going to have the second part of, you know, how he met Jesus, when it was, where he was. Um, you know, you, our stories may not be as dramatic as Paul's here, but no less miraculous. And so here we have it, verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, by faith in me. That's powerful. That's one of the most powerful passages you know, that you could you know, possibly read. As he talks about his you know, conversion. And there's a couple points here that I want to make that I think are relevant for us today. You know, when Jesus comes to, to Saul, he, you know, who we know as better by his Greek name, Paul. When he says, why are you persecuting me? You know, he didn't say, you know, why are you doing these things to these other people? He says, why are you persecuting me? And so we understand that when a person is truly suffering because they are a follower of Jesus, that the, that really Jesus is the target. You know, it's just that that person happens to be the only one they can get a hold of in that moment. But Jesus is the true target. He's the true target, um, and that's why Paul talks about how. You know, the joy it is to be counted worthy to suffer for His name. You know, and and that's really key because suffering. You know, there's suffering that happens without purpose. You know, there's suffering that just happens because people are evil, because people are mean. Um, there's suffering that happens because people are you know greedy and they just you know they just want to rob somebody, they want to take something that doesn't you know that doesn't belong to them out of another person, um, or they just want to fight someone. You know, that's not really what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is when people are targets because of the name of Jesus. And that's, Jesus is the real target there. Um, and so we, we want to keep that in mind and to understand that, that today around the world, you know, our brothers and sisters in Christ do suffer for the name of Jesus. Not for political reasons so much or for... Um, you know, economic reasons, or for you know, for other or ethnic reasons, but because they belong to Jesus, because they carry with them the name of Jesus, and we need to remember that these are our brothers and sisters. And so, if you know, if, if if they're being persecuted, we're being persecuted. If Jesus, if people are going after Jesus, they're you know, we're all in this together. We're all in this together, um, and we need to keep that in mind. And we need to you know, as people. Um, who have voice and who have um, certain freedoms. We need to make sure that we strive to use those for the good you know, of others, both believers and unbelievers, but you know, especially those who are persecute, being persecuted because they are following Jesus. Certainly we need to pray for them and um, to stand up for them um, when we can. You know, Paul here... You know, he uses his Roman citizenship, you know, so that he doesn't just go back to Jerusalem and get slaughtered, um, because he knows he has a mission, he knows God's, you know, promised him, and he knows he's got to testify in Rome, and this is his avenue for that, but he uses that earthly tool that he has in his Roman citizenship for, for good. Now... You know, We need to consider, if you're, in, you know, if you're from the United States, you have certain rights, you have certain privileges that many other people don't have. You, know, you want to go visit tons of other countries, you, know, you just go fill out some paperwork and it's a done deal. There's not really a question of whether you're going to get a passport or not. Right? Or whether you're going to get permission or, or a visa, get a permission to go in. But for so many people in the world, it's a, I mean, it, you know, if they don't have a status... In their society, they're not going to get it. They don't, you know, they have to go through so many more things. That's just one privilege that we have. I mean, there's so many people in the world, you understand, that don't even have paperwork. They don't have proof of when they were born or who they were born to, what day it was, you know, all of those things. Imagine trying to live your life. Just take away, take away all your documents. Now try to live. Try to be able to, to rent a place. Try to be able to buy a place. Try to open up a bank account. Try to do any of the normal things without any proof of who you are. That's, I mean, there's a, but there's a ton of people in our world who have no, they have no papers, no documentation, period. Period. Uh, and so, we need to think about the positions that we're in, the privileges that we have, and, and not abuse those, but leverage those for the good of others. You know, for the good of others. Um, and so we can stand, stand up and try, you know, to, to help people. Um, you know, I've had the privilege a couple times You know, in, in my life to use the fact that I have papers to help other people get them. You know, I had a, a a man in in my neighborhood um, had you know married a a, a woman from uh, South America, and they were having all sorts of you know document problems because they were you know the 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 thought was you just did this in order you know for her to come here and this isn't you know going to be a, a real marriage and you know all of that, and all it took was one letter, you know. Stating where they stood and you know the reality of the situation, and you know the stamps on the paper, and it's done. That's all it took. Uh, and so it's you know using the privilege to create an opportunity. Now you, we don't want to do that. You know we never would want to do that in a way that's dishonest or dishonorable. But you know when we have ability to help others, and it's a and there's a good reason. There's a it's a legitimate cause say that a legitimate cause, then certainly we should, you know, strive uh, to help where we can. And so let's consider these things um, as we move forward, you know, through this lesson and through, you know, through our lives of using our, our places of, of privilege. And we, we talk, we've talked about this before. I mean, Saul had, you know, Saul, Paul, he, I mean, he did come from a place of privilege you know he came from a family with money he came with a family where they were able to to send him to jerusalem for his education and to get the very best education that could be had he had the best education you know from the from the roman empire side and from the you know hebrew side that he could possibly get and ultimately god uses that you know but he's also able to use the fishermen you know in galilee who didn't have those opportunities and didn't have the education? He's able to use their lives just as powerfully. Um, but whatever situation you're in, God can work and God can move. Uh, but use the tools that He's given, the opportunities that He's given to us for His glory and honor. And here, what he, you know, Paul is so bold because he says, "Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles." It's like God's—you know—Jesus promised me I'd be delivered from you and from you. You know, he's like, you know, you know, basically what he's what he's stating here is not that he just gets to live live until he dies a natural death. But he's stating that, you know, nobody gets to touch me without God being okay with it. So he doesn't have fear. Unless God is okay with it, you don't get to touch me. You don't. Nobody here gets to touch me. That's the confidence that he has. That's the confidence that he has in the power of of God. He sa- and he says this, to whom I am sending you that Jesus said, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. So he's claiming everybody there is blind spiritually to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That is a powerful, no holds barred gospel message. You know, he, he's, he's letting them know that they are lost, that they are, that they are inadequate before God, that they are in darkness, that they are part of the kingdom of Satan, and that they need to turn. They need, they need to turn from darkness to light so they can receive the forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified. He's offering them the opportunity to be part of God's family, both Jew and Gentile, both Jewish priest and Roman leader and Roman soldier, and you know, everybody else who's there, all the servants that are there, everybody who is there, Here. is hearing this message and being given an opportunity. And I would just encourage us, you know, we need to be bold in sharing the gospel. If it's true, and we can do so, you know, to do so in love. You know, we're not trying to argue people into the kingdom, you know, <laughs> but we, we do need to tell the truth to people. And we need to do so in love, but we do also with boldness. You know, if, it, if we believe all this is real, we of all people don't have to be weak. We can be meek. You know, meekness is restrained strength, and it's the proper use of strength. But it's not, a, it's not weakness and especially in terms of how the world thinks about it. But it's a bold love that's, that comes out from the spirit because we, we understand our flesh is weak. But do you understand that we, if you are a follower of Jesus, we, you carry around you the most powerful force in the universe because God is with you. He dwells within you. You're a temple of God. And so the most powerful force in the universe is within us and so that's why the scripture says that God has not given us a spirit of fear or a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of sound mind. So we can preach the gospel with boldness. And I would contend with you today that no matter the situation, that's always easier to do publicly than it is privately. It's always easier to do with 50, 500, 5,000 than it is with one if you can do it with one, you can do it really with anybody. That's the that's the that's when you need the boldness the most is when it's one on one. I mean, I'll tell you that from from experience, having preached to pretty good sized groups of people, and you know, lots of one on one conversations. The one on one conversations are always harder. Now, some of you that have a fear of public speaking may disagree with that, and that's okay. Everybody could have their different perspective on that. Um, But whatever whatever the situation is, God will give you the boldness and the strength for what you need and what is necessary in that moment. If you just trust Him, if you just say, "Lord, I'm an open vessel to be used for You," I trust You. Use my life for Your glory. Use these words for Your glory. God will certainly do it. You know, you don't have to be in fear. Um, or timid, or at least we can say that the power of God will overcome is strong enough and powerful enough to overcome your fears, to overcome your timidness. No greater power in the world, if you're a follower of Jesus, than what is in you and that you carry around with you every single day. That we exist, our purpose at this point for not immediately being translated to heaven when we believe is to be his witnesses here on the earth while we are here on the earth. We exist to know God, to know him intimately, and to make him known to others. That is our purpose. It may take different formats and different ways and different things, and, but our purpose is no different than what God called Paul to. Our purpose in life is no different than that. When it comes to ultimate purpose, to know God, to make him known. So in verse 19, Paul continues this powerful message and he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise to the dead. He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's a powerful way to to finish um, the, the heart of the message here that he gives. He's going to say some more words, which we'll get to. But he says, you know, this is what Jesus told me to do. I was obedient to it. Here's where I went, you know, sharing this message. And again, to, to Jewish and Gentiles alike, that they should repent and turn to God. And then performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Like, it's like, okay, so the repentance is the turn from you know, what we used to believe. From what we used to live. From all these things. And, and particularly on the belief side. To now believing in Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is you know, the Savior and the King, and, and I'm going to follow him. But then he says, and performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You know, P- Paul never teaches us that it's the deeds that save us, but he does teach us that if we're saved, the deeds should follow. You know, there should be that evidence. You know, and there's that evidence in his life of you know he changed from trying to kill the people of the way to now you know being willing to suffer and to be killed in order to proclaim the way of Jesus but he does this ha- he does have this where you know your your life should reflect what you believe we would call that you know we could call that practical theology and in many ways, you know, our theology is only as good as we practice. You know, so we, we don't want to just talk a good game; we want to live a good game. And uh, you know, we we want we want that um, in our in our lives. We also see this theme of light. It's a key scriptural theme. Uh, it was a theme of prophet of the prophet Isaiah concerning the Messiah. Uh, but we read in in Luke chapter two. Um, in verse 27 through 32, and this was with Simeon's um, prophetic words in the temple, it says, And he came in the, into the spirit into the temple. He came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart at peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And so that is our Savior and King, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Luke, so Luke, and the reason I want to pull that from Luke is because you know, Luke writes both Luke and Acts. Um, and so... He also records in chapter 13, verse 47 of Acts, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've bade you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so now here in Acts 26, near the end of the book, we see this beautiful theme revisited um, again in Luke's writings. And so we, you know, when we think about it this way, each one of us desperately needed someone to share the light of Jesus into our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you, know, you needed someone to shine that light. That someone you know, might have been a parent or your parents. It might have been a friend. Uh, it might have been you know, people in the church you grew up in. It um, might have been people in this church. It might have been uh, a stranger. But someone shared some light you know, with you and, and into your life. And we need to remember that every person in this world needs the, that light shining bright into their lives. And that at least gives opportunity. Opportunity. You know, and and when we think about the vision, you know, that we wanna that we want to have, you know, everybody in your circle of influence, if you think about everybody in your circle of influence, you say, you know, every one of them, man, woman, or child. Needs the light of Jesus in their lives. Where we have, every, everywhere we have opportunity, every man, woman, and child needs the light of Jesus in their lives. They at least need to have an opportunity to know who He is, to know who He is. And that's, you know, where we wanna, where we wanna be, you know, strategic and where we wanna work um, well. We wanna say, okay, where in the world is there not much light? And what difference? Can we make there, you know? And, and we are, you know, participating um, in those things in the world in places where there isn't much light, but the light is, you know, shining forth and it's going forward. And we have the privilege and the crazy thing that God would do, you know, with a small group of people uh, to help others in the world have light. But for that to be, we want that light to shine bright. We want it to shine all the time. We want it to grow in intensity of brightness. You know, you're ever in a room. You know, you're in a room that's dark, and then you know, you put a there's like a low watt you know bulb or you know a, a low amount of light. And You're like, okay, I can I can see my hands here. I can see a little bit here, but then you replace you put another light and you put a, you know put a brighter light in, and how much better you can see. Well we want it, we want it to be so bright that it just you know it pushes out the darkness. That it pushes out the darkness, that the name of Jesus would be lifted so high that it would be proclaimed so well, that it would be practiced, you know, because that's what people need to see. You know, for so many people they have to do more it has to be more than they just they hear about the light. They need to see it in our lives. You need to see the difference that it makes. And you need to see the love that God has for them. And a lot of times that, that God is showing them that love that he has for them through our lives. You know, it's almost like we want to pray, Lord, show them your love. Well, if we're serious about that prayer, a lot of times he's going to use us to show that love through. And so that's where the sacrifice comes in. Because a lot of times to share that love and to share that life, is, you know, that light isn't convenient. We have to go out of our way. We have to be inconvenienced. We have to do things that we don't want to do. We have to have conversations we don't want to have. We have to, you know, lose some sleep sometimes. We have to miss out on some, some things. We have to make some trades. We have to make some trades. But in order to live a focused life and to follow Jesus, we have to make some trades, you know. And so we have to evaluate. We have to evaluate it. And I think that that's one of the big challenges for us, particularly in, a, in the materialistic culture that we live in. You know, it's, it's kind of like two struggles. One the struggle is, you know, we see the stuff and we want the stuff because the stuff is nice, right? I mean, let's just be honest. If it wasn't, it wasn't appealing, if there was no attractiveness to it, you know, we wouldn't even be concerned about it at all. And so there's a financial cost to that, but everything that we bring into our lives, every object also comes with it a time commitment. You know, a lot of times we look at something, we look at an object, and we think about it in terms of how much it costs dollars, but we fail to think about it in how much it costs time. First time, the first equation of time is, how much time did I have to work? How much time was I obligated to do these other things in order to have said object? And that's pretty simple math. Cost of object divided by your you know, approximate hourly wage. Even if you're salaried, you still pretty much what you get for the year. This is how many hours. This is how much. You can do that math. So this is how much time that costs. Is x worth four hours of my time eight hours a week years <laughs> you, know, you, you start thinking about it in that reality, but then also think about all the time that 's associated with that object in terms of just like maintenance and upkeep and keeping it from falling apart, especially if it 's the more and the more valuable it is. Usually, the more time it requires—not always—but many times, the more time it then requires. Um, and then you think about it in terms of its utility and, and what does it accomplish, and does it accomplish good things, you know, for the kingdom, and, and can it be used as a tool, you know, for God? And we need to weigh all these things out. And, and my job isn't to sit here and to tell you, you know, give you a list of of items and how much and you know all of that stuff, but. It is we have a responsibility for one another to to say, let's ask the questions. Ask the questions in your life. Time slash money, is it worth it? Because we are making trades. We are making trades. Because the reality of it is that we, we live in a world where You know, even little sacrifices can turn into big returns in the kingdom of God. Into big returns. Um, And so we need to be thinking about these things and and working through these things because we want that light to shine. And we have to understand, not everybody is going to, even with that light shining, like it is here. I mean, Paul gives it as clear as it can be given. And yet in verse 24... do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might be such as I am, except for these chains. So he addresses the king, but notice there he doesn't just leave it for the king. Like, I wish that, that you and you know and everybody here that hear me would be just as I am, except for these chains. I wouldn't want you to have to go through the pains that I've gone through for this, but I would want you to know my Savior and King, Jesus. That's Paul's heart and his message. And you think about all the people that are there, and ultimately we don't know the result of it, but I, you know, I personally, I, I can't imagine that there weren't some people, whether they were servants or soldiers or you know, other officials that heard these messages and went back and wept as they were convicted by the Holy Spirit, that they wept at their sin and that they believed in Jesus. And if there was just one who did that, then every, every word of, that was given was not wasted Verse 30, Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they were withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So here we have the legal innocence of Paul confirmed. But it's also interesting, Agrippa and Festus assumed they would do the right thing if it was in their power anymore. Right Because now that power's been taken out of his, their hands because as a Roman citizen he has this this right to appeal to Caesar and he uses it, that decision is taken from them their reasons and their valid reasons is to question their sincerity. Uh, they would at least be tempted to do what's politically advantageous in their rule over Israel, and so you know whether or not they would have done that, I think there's a good reason to at least question their sincerity. But Paul is headed for Rome. His destiny awaits. Um, next week we'll see his exciting journey to Rome. Uh, but in the meantime, this week, you know, let's let our light shine. Let's be bold in sharing that good news of Jesus. Let's make good trades and have our priorities um, on the Lord. And so may He help us to be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your powerful word and how good it is in our lives. And please help us to follow you fully with our whole hearts, minds, all of our strength, God. We thank you for your love and your goodness to us. Thank you that we do get to enjoy some really great things um, in this life. And we're thankful uh, for those who had to get married yesterday and and celebrate that. And we thank you, God, for the joy in their lives. But we pray that they, most of all, would follow you and serve you with their whole hearts. For all of us, Lord, there's so many things in life uh, that can distract us, that can pull us aside. And so, Lord, we need your help. And we say, help us to keep you first, Jesus, because you are to be our first love, um, our first priority first in everything, as Savior and King. And so Jesus, as we take the bread and and the cup and we remember you, remember your great love and sacrifice for us, we pray that you would help us to put you first, to love you first. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen.